Thanks for being with us. As you know, we've been using the terms social distancing, physical distancing for many people is a much more, uh, gets a stronger image. Two meters is the distance or about six feet. If you are going out, that is how long, uh, how long of a distance you are to leave between yourself and the people around you. Not always easy, absolutely, but police are enforcing this and uh, I'm still one of the few at the office in the uh, TD Tower downtown and uh, on Granville Street today. I saw a police officer breaking up a group of about five people who were in a doorway saying, absolutely not. You cannot be that close together. You need to break it up. Unfortunately, those in the group were giving the police officer a bit of a tough time, but uh, the officer uh, said no. You can't be this close together. And a lot of people have become kind of citizen officers, so taking a look at what's happening and maybe not stepping in, but wondering what they can do to stop that type of behavior. Well, let's bring in Jonathan Cote, the mayor of the city of New Westminster. Mayor Cote, thank you so much for being with us. No, pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, You have a compliance line, one of the things that New West has done. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit, what does that look like? Yeah, well, we, we set up a, a compliance line, uh, a phone number, and, uh, and an email address uh, that uh, that residents can, can share concerns that they're seeing out in, in the community. And we set this up recognizing that uh, our crews, police, fire, bylaws can't be in every location at, at every time, uh, but residents uh, being our eyes and ears out in the community uh, are starting to see a few things here and there that, that do need to be addressed. And when they call then, they call and then who decides then? Is it something that police respond to or a city bylaw officer? Who makes that decision? Yeah, so we've uh, we've set up a, a working group uh, with uh, focusing on education and, and enforcement. And uh, that group uh, has a number of different departments working together from police, fire, bylaws, park staff. And all of those crews are, are working to uh, uh, to help educate and, and enforce the, the provincial health bylaws. So what happens when complaints come in? Uh, they start to get triaged in terms of where they fall in priority, uh, you know, in terms of the level of concern and which uh, which department would be the appropriate one to, uh, to to respond to it. And how long has the line been operating now? So it, uh, it the line was started up in, on Saturday and uh, and has been in operation since uh, since that time. And, and people have been been calling in and emailing their concerns. And uh, the city has been actively starting this weekend uh, using that as, as one of the tools we've had to to help uh, educate and enforce uh, enforce the directives coming from the provincial health officer. Uh, any idea how many calls or emails that have come in so far? Yeah, so we just started uh, started it this weekend and uh, just getting the information information out. So uh, this weekend, uh, you know, I think there was only about 12 calls that uh, that came in through uh, through the entire weekend. But what we were also finding is people were finding different channels to come through uh, to to put these forward and we're hoping people can focus all of these uh, these types of calls and inquiries into in, into the phone uh, into the phone line so that they're not going to various different departments in in the city. Uh, we've talked a lot about how Vancouver's state of emergency or Vancouver's a little bit different with the Vancouver Charter and the penalties that that council brought in. So does what's happening in New Westminster, though, then fall to the provincial state of emergency? And if so, what are the penalties for people who are caught going against these rules? 
Yeah, so uh, yeah, definitely cities like like New Westminster and most other cities other than Vancouver fall under the the provincial uh, state state of emergency there. So we're still working to to get clarity as to exactly the, the type of enforcement levels uh, that uh, that we as a city can can take on in, in our measure. Our focus with with residents uh, at, at this time has been uh, has been on on the education component and making sure we're we're separating when we're seeing social distancing not not occurring. Uh, with respect to businesses. Uh, once again, focusing on, on education, but if businesses are not operating uh, properly, that's where we look at maybe looking at pulling business licenses, which is something that we can do. All right. So education at this point, and maybe a bit different with businesses, would you like to see a scenario where if people aren't physically distancing in public, they're fined? Well, you know, I think uh, our strategy right now to focus on education seems to be working. Uh, I get reports back from our crews uh, uh, every day, and it is it is indicating the vast majority of, of folks are, are really starting to, to get it. And even some of the problems we were seeing uh, a week ago, those types of problems are becoming less and less frequent. So, uh, you know, I think our measures to, to get the education out uh, first is, is important. Um, but if we do need some tools on the enforcement side of things, uh, obviously that, that could, uh, could be helpful as, as, as a last case resort. Are there particular areas in New Westminster that are more difficult or that uh, you are still seeing people gathering and not paying attention to the rules? Yeah, well, you know, I think the the biggest challenge areas are are the places that that seem to attract the most people normally. So, uh, you know, our riverfront uh, is is an area that that tends to be attracting more and more people. And, uh, you know, I think our assessment is most people are are practicing social social distancing there. Uh, Other areas like our skateboard parks, which we have closed, uh, still seem to be attracting some uh, some some groups there. So we're working on different measures on how can we better fence off these areas and make them even more difficult uh, for for groups to, to congregate. It's got to be frustrating that with all of the attention and all of the information out there as to why we're doing this, so you're still seeing people gathering at these places. It, it is frustrating, but, you know, I, I'll get back to my earlier point. So what we are seeing is the vast majority of residents are getting this and, and are actually really complying really, really well and doing the best they, they can. So, uh, you know, the feedback I'm, I'm getting from our crews who are out there on, on the ground is that people are getting the message and, uh, and, and really doing their best to, to practice social, safe social distancing. All right. Uh, Mayor Cote, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Well, a petition that has been launched on change.org to allow free hospital parking for BC's healthcare workers now has more than 9,600 signatures, getting pretty close to the goal of 10,000 signatures. And the issue of parking at hospitals certainly has been talked about before, but several people are now calling for a suspension of fees for parking, again, for workers at many of the provinces, if not all of the province's hospitals. Uh, let's bring in Christine Sorensen, president of the BC Nurses Union. Christine, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Glad to be here. Um, before we talk parking, how are nurses doing as some of the, the frontline workers and right in the middle of dealing with this pandemic? Oh, well, they're pretty stressed. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on right now. They've been working really hard to uh, open up bed spaces and uh, get prepared for what we anticipate will be increasing numbers of people coming into the hospital with COVID. Uh, in it and in other parts of the healthcare system, we've seen the strain, uh, obviously, in places like our long-term care facilities that are being particularly hard hit. Uh, and, you know, the ongoing issue around access and the amount of supply of personal protective equipment uh, continues to weigh heavy on the nurses uh, who are trying very hard to do their work right now and trying to keep themselves safe and their patients safe and uh, not spread COVID out into the community. And do we have enough nurses at this point or a lot of nurses working double shifts? 
Uh, well, that's always been a concern that we've been that we've been raising for a very long time with this government and the previous government. Uh, you know, we don't have enough nurses uh, to meet the needs of the patient population in British Columbia. We have been working short for a very long time. Uh, and nurses now are working even more hours than they ever have before. And, uh, you know, that's taking a toll on the nurses. They're working longer shifts, in some cases double shifts, because the other staff aren't able to come in where people are sick. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it's a really difficult time. We don't have enough nurses, and we're doing the best we can. And as far as equipment, you mentioned, and I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, how are we as far as emergency equipment and that equipment that is so needed by healthcare professionals to keep themselves safe? Well, as you've heard the minister and the um, provincial health officer say, you know, we, uh, we have the equipment that we need today. Uh, personal protective equipment, particularly N95 masks, are in shortage around the world. Uh, this is not uh, an issue simply just for British Columbia, uh, and that is causing, you know, stress at all levels. Uh, I do know that uh, everyone is working extremely hard at trying to access enough personal protective equipment, enough N95 masks for the nurses. Uh, you know, we have dipped into our pandemic, pandemic supply, as indicated by the Minister of Health, uh, but we have enough today. The most important part is we need to keep people as healthy as long as possible so we can get those supplies replenished. Uh, that's a big part of flattening the curve, keeping people out of hospital, keeping the population uh, healthy as long as possible so we can replenish those supplies and then manage when people are sick. All right. I want to talk to you as well about the issue of parking. As we've heard, more and more people join in this call to have free parking for healthcare workers. Uh, there have been stories about nurses in some cases getting tickets for extended parking when they're working those long hours. Uh, would you like to see that? Is that even possible, do you think? Well, everything's possible. We've seen widespread orders and all kinds of changes that have happened. We're all at home now isolating under those orders, and that's a good thing. Uh, so, yes, I think that this is possible, and I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, we have healthcare staff that are working extended shifts, sometimes longer than they anticipated, uh, who really don't need an additional irritant of finding a parking ticket when they return. Thankfully, nobody's been towed at this point, uh, and those tickets that have come come to nurses uh, and other health care providers have been overturned. Um, but it's just another uh, irritation that people just don't need right now. Uh, and nurses are stressed about, you know, being there for their patients and they don't need to leave their patient's bedside uh, or COVID planning meetings or any other urgent care in, the, in our hospital or long-term care facilities to run out and plug a parking meter at this time. That's really not an essential thing, uh, uh, paid parking. And it really, in this short period of time, we're asking for it to be alleviated. And, and how widespread is that in that we had a, a healthcare worker call in uh, to the show just a few moments ago saying at VGH, she's part of a, a plan where it comes off her paycheck so she can park in the lot. Um, there were other issues of the lot often being full. Uh, but how widespread is it that, that nurses are actually at meters where they have to physically go outside and plug the meter? Well, well that does happen because we have nurses that sometimes are working in our smaller facilities. I had a nurse the other day tell me she has to walk five blocks uh, just to get parking. You know, parking is always a challenge in all these healthcare facilities. Right now, there's not a lot of people out, but the people who are out are healthcare workers, people who are working in that hospital doing essential service work, whether they're nurses, doctors, or other members of the healthcare team, and their patients, uh, and the few, very few family members that are going in to support the patients. Uh, we certainly hope everybody will leave the parking at healthcare facilities for those people, um, but, you know, we are working at all levels. Uh, to see if we can get this uh, suspended for the period of time that we're in on this crisis. 
I will say I, ha- I was contacted by uh, Royal Parking, a company that manages parking in the Lower Mainland, uh, and they're suspending uh, paid parking at their sites uh, for all healthcare workers, and they really want to do their part. So that came to me first thing this morning, and I'm really pleased to uh, see the public stepping forward. Oh, I- indeed. Do you know which sites that includes? Uh, I understand Royal Parking covers uh, sites across the Lower Mainland. Uh, I don't know which sites or how many, but I have shared that information uh, with our representatives in the Lower Mainland, and they'll distribute that out to their, their nurses. All right. Uh, we only have about a minute left. One other, are there, is there any directive? Because it seems in this time of self-isolation, it would be far more important for a nurse to stay in a hospital than to risk going into a community to plug a parking meter. Uh, is there any direction saying, get the ticket, we'll fight it later uh, in the meantime until we get this worked out? No, there's no direction at the level. You know, I mean, this is a chaotic time. There's lots of things that that are flipping through, and this parking really hasn't been one that that came to the forefront until this just came up. Uh, But we are all working trying to solve that. You know, we really do want to make things easier for for the nurses and other healthcare workers so that they can focus on doing what they need to do, which is provide patient care, make sure they're safe, make sure they're, they're safe when they leave that facility and go home and out into the community. Uh, so that's really what we want to do is focus on that. All right. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Christine, thank you so much. And to all the nurses and healthcare workers, we'll be making noise at 7 p.m. again tonight. But thanks so much for taking some time. Thank you. And thank you for your support. All right. That is Christine Sorensen, the president of the BC Nurses Union. Uh, what are your thoughts on this idea of free hospital parking? Uh, it is possible, could be complicated in some areas. Uh, is it important? And that is good news, as Christine Sorensen was saying. One company uh, that does parking is suspending the parking fees as we deal with the pandemic. Thanks for being with us. A little later on this hour, around 1.30, we are expecting the update from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. We will bring that to you live as it happens this afternoon. But first, we're going to check in with an ER doctor in BC who put a video on YouTube on March 28th, just two days ago. It already has more than 15,000 views, and it comes with a very sobering message. Currently, I'm only able to swab patients who are either... Um, ill enough to come into hospital, healthcare workers, or uh, clusters that are being actively investigated under the guideline of the uh, of the MHO. So what that means is, if I see you in my department and you are clinically stable, um, your lungs are functional normally, I'm going to be sending you home and um, directing you to, to self quarantine for 14 days. And that scares me because, I mean, 10 years of, of clinical practice have taught me that, um, unfortunately, patients aren't consistent in following uh, direction. All right, that is just part of the message from Dr. Sean Wormsbecker. And Dr. Wormsbecker joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, my pleasure. Uh, did you expect that that video would get such reaction? Um, you know, I didn't. Um, I, for the most part, it was initially meant to essentially helped to educate a lot of my friends who had a lot of questions, family. Um, I was repeatedly getting the question, do I need to come into emergency? Will this change my management? Am I going to get tested? And, you know, I, I want to be clear. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm an emergency doctor. So, I, you know, I can't speak to as to whether or not, um, you know, our current testing protocols are going to um, help or harm compared to countries that are testing more. But, um, what I can tell you is that uh, the, the, the total number of confirmed cases is, is not going to be representative of what's actually in the community. 
Um, and I, I just really want to emphasize to people that what they have to take to heart and take home is that if you either do the self-assessment and it tells you that you need to self-isolate, or if you come into an emergency department and you're told you're, you need to self-isolate, it is very likely that you may have this disease and your uh, efforts to isolate literally will save lives. Um, one indiscretion, one stepping into a store and touching a door handle means that you could potentially give this to someone else who, who may be vulnerable and could very well lose their life from it. So when you see people and you put this, this was in part of the video as well. So when you're dealing with patients and you see people the ones so you test the ones that have symptoms or you test the ones that are most likely because you've also talked about how you have sent people home who you believe have COVID-19. Yeah so currently um, I, uh, we only test those who are either ill enough to warrant admission to hospital, uh, healthcare providers with symptoms or uh, patients that are being uh, actively investigated as part of cluster outbreaks. So if you're healthy and your vital signs are stable, even if you have symptoms that are in keeping with COVID-19, we're not currently testing you. So do you think it would change, though, if, if everybody was being tested, the people that still weren't sick enough to be in hospital would still be sent home and told to quarantine? Would you not still have the same concerns? Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, if, if we swab you and you, get, you come back as positive and you're in the community, you can expect to get a call from a, a public health nurse. There's going to be follow-up, and, and I, I think this helps to reinforce for these patients um, the importance of their quarantine. Um, if we had gotten out ahead of this thing and were testing um, every patient uh, that, that contracted it and had adequate contact tracing, I think there could have been a lot more preventative measures um, to control cluster outbreaks as they, as they ensued. As it stands now, my understanding is this is just far too widespread in the community, and um, it's no longer possible to to catch up in that respect. Um, but but I, I think p- part of what often just gets missed, and, and maybe this can just be bridged with, with public education, is that not testing does not mean not concerned. Um, and, and so, you know, repeatedly I'll talk to a patient and say, I think you have this. And they'll say, well, why aren't you testing? And I'll explain. And, you know, I mean, when I'm having this conversation with someone who's calm and, and, and sort of a little bit detached, they can understand this. But when you're in an emergency department, I'm standing two meters away, suited up and telling you that you're not getting tested and you're going home. There's so much emotion that people, I think, sometimes, you know, don't understand that. They either feel that they're not being taken seriously or that they're, even if I say that I think they have it, that they still don't think it's as serious as when I've confirmed it uh, with a swab. And what is the reason for that? Because we've been hearing all along that BC has been ahead when it comes to testing. When we first heard about the first death in Washington state, the numbers even back then, BC was testing more than all of the United States. So what is the reason now for when you're confronted with somebody who you're pretty sure has it that you don't test? To be honest test? with you, I mean, uh, I'm getting mixed messages. So I To, to, to explain exactly why they feel that we're, we don't need to be doing more testing. Um, okay, sorry, your phone, just, your phone just cut out there right after you said you were oh, getting sorry. mixed messages. No, that's okay. So, so you're getting mixed messages how? Um, uh, so it's not that I'm getting mixed messages. It's, it's basically that we're, not, we're, we're being told that, that it's not necessary to test people that we're sending home. And the, the feeling is that, that it's not going to change management. Um, 
I think that's that's fine in a perfect world. Um, I think that culturally, um, unfortunately, uh, our, our population isn't as good at um, at following self quarantine. Uh, many of my colleagues have had the experience of calling someone to let them know that their test is actually negative, only to notice background sounds that clearly indicate that that person wasn't following quarantine without that information. Hmm. Uh, so what, and do you think too, because when we heard that uh, the news was, we saw that first bit of good news in that it seemed the measures that are in place now are working. My first response was, oh no, people are just going to see that headline and think things are great and go back to what they were doing. Are, are we losing or, or not hammering home that message enough that just because we see things perhaps start to go the right direction, that doesn't mean to stop doing the measures that are in place? Uh, I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, the way that this, this, this thing works, what people need to understand is until we have some kind of broad-based immunity, if indeed that can happen, um, even if we sort of get over the hump of one um, spike, if we go right back to doing what we're not supposed to be doing, we'll just create a new spike and be crawling up a new curve. And so, you know, until we've had this, consistently showing improving numbers for an extended period of time, we can't relax our measures and, uh, and only time will tell. And I'm not the one to really answer the question, even how long we should hold that line for, but it's a lot longer than, than another week. I can say that with certainty. Absolutely. Uh, so as of Saturday, there were 884 confirmed cases in BC. What would your best guesstimate be, seeing as you're somebody on the front lines dealing with this, what, what the actual number might be? Honestly, I, I really couldn't make a, 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 a guess at that number. I mean, what you'd have to do is essentially sort of look at... Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't make a guess at that number. Sure. What I can tell you is, um, you know, per shift, I'm seeing... On average, I would say one to three cases that are consistent with with the symptoms of COVID, but well enough to go home without a test. Um, now, that's just one emergency physician at, at two sites, and there's going to be variation uh, depending on the population of different hospitals. But, I mean, you know, you can still work the numbers out that, that you know, at any on any given day at my site alone, you've got many emergency doctors working, and then you multiply that by all the sites in the province. You, there are there are a lot more cases than what we're detecting. Right. Uh, you work at two sites. Are there any concerns? I mean, you're, you're in in direct contact with people every single day. Is there any concerns with working at two sites and cross contamination? Um, there is some some talk about um, about working towards. Um, basically sort of splitting off and 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 in the future scheduling at at sort of single sites so that we don't have that issue i know that the the nurses are working towards something but i'm not directly uh connected with their their policy um but that is a, that is a very valid concern all right uh, dr wormsbecker we'll leave it there but thank you so much uh, for putting this video out there for people and for uh, hammering that message home and for being available today we really appreciate it my pleasure and and, and again just you know i'm I just want to emphasize to everyone, keep the distance, wash your hands, don't touch your face. Um, you're, you're literally probably saving more lives than I am if you're doing that. All right. Thank you again so much, and, and thank you for the work you do. My pleasure. 
All right, we are going to check in uh, with Shane Woodford. Uh, used to be a journalist here. He now works in Denmark. As you've likely heard in the news, Denmark has extended a nationwide lockdown. It will now go until at least April 13th, and there have been more than 50 coronavirus-related deaths in that country. Shane, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for being here. Hey, and congratulations on the program. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, strange times to be doing this, uh, but we're going to keep uh, covering COVID-19. Uh, what is happening yeah. there? We, we've seen the extension of the lockdown. Uh, does that mean it's not working as well as they thought, or, or it is, and they want to keep those measures in place? It means that it is working, and they want to keep those measures in place. Matter of fact, uh, the Prime Minister of Denmark, Meta Frederiksen, had a press conference just a few hours ago here and expressed some optimism that the measures are working so well that if the trend continues for the next two weeks, that the country will actually uh, institute a gradual reopening just after the Easter long weekend. And she stressed it. It's always interesting to me covering press conferences, as you have uh, back in D.C. and Canada, about how some of the language from politicians can be, you know, a little flowery sometimes. And here it's really striking how blunt they are. She flat out said, I, I, you know, quite frankly, wasn't sure I should have this press conference because I don't want to give Danes false hope or inspire people to do things that are going to mean infection numbers start really climbing again. She also really stressed in very blunt language that the infection is going to be here even after or if we reopen and that more Danes are going to die. Um, But we feel that the situation is well enough in hand that we can start considering that option. And are you getting the sense that people are following the rules or are are realizing the importance of doing this and and are okay to be living under this this new normal for the time being? Yes and no. Um, my sense is from being out in Denmark uh, and traveling around here and going out and sort of being in 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 the country is that people are by and large respecting the rules. The restrictions here are pretty fierce. I mean, there's virtually nothing open now except for grocery stores and the occasional restaurant who's doing takeout, gas stations, uh, that kind of thing. Um, people noticeably give you space uh, when we're out hiking or when we're walking around town. Um, my sense is that everyone is very hyper aware of what's going on. That said, um, there is a fine system in place for people who aren't abiding by the rules. It's about in Canadian dollars, it's about $300 per person. Uh, If you're caught gathering in a crowd over 10, that's inside or outside. Uh, And it's about $1,000 Canadian for a business that's caught breaking the rules. And I have seen uh, some coverage here of uh, certain establishments and people that have indeed broken those rules and fines have been handed out. But I think by and large, most of the population knows what's going on and is respecting uh, respecting the rules. I've even seen um, some video from Copenhagen and Aarhus, which are obviously the two largest cities here. And drone footage flying over those cities in the middle of a beautiful sunny day just a day or two ago. And it was like a ghost town, which is really something. And uh, so what are you allowed to do? You mentioned hiking. You're still allowed to go out as long as you're following uh, the, the strict distancing? Yeah, you can go out. You can do stuff. Uh, we can walk around. There's no, like, we're not quarantined in our homes or anything. Uh, we're just not allowed, unless it's, uh, unless it's immediate family, like people you're living with, you're not allowed to gather in large groups. Uh, like I said, over 10. So, you know, we can't, you know, get together in the street and have a big street party or go inside a coffee establishment, for example. I've noticed that the one here in the town I live in has essentially sort of created an ad hoc walk-by window uh, so that people don't go inside at all and you just kind of stand out there and and uh, and buy your coffee and, and move on. And, and the lines, even in some of the stores, there's now limits on who can go in. 
Uh, I know the fish store down the street I drove by the other day. It was kind of funny. There was like about a, you know, there's people staggered good three, four feet apart. They were going down the sidewalk waiting to go in because there's a two-person limit. You see stuff like that here a lot. But, I mean, you can still move around. I, I sort of describe it as every day is like a slow Sunday morning. You know, a lot of shops are closed. A few people are wandering around. Uh, there's a decline in car traffic. But other than that, it's life is normal. It sounds quite similar to what we're seeing here in BC as well. And uh, I share your concern with even seeing headlines or uh, any kind of reference to turning a corner or it's working because people often, myself included, don't read the full text. And it doesn't mean to stop what we're doing. It means it's more important than ever to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, the the, the genesis of the whole flatten the curve movement, right? It's not that we're going to drum coronavirus completely or eradicate it pending a vaccine at some point in time. Hopefully one comes along. But our immediate reality, Jill, is that we're going to have to live with this thing in one variation or another. Uh, The idea of flattening the curve is to take some some sacrifices, keep away from people, put up with some restrictions in order to not overwhelm the health system, which is exactly the point here in Denmark. Everybody's looking at what happened in Italy where the health system got absolutely sideswiped. It's just just a tragedy there. And uh, and people want to make sure that that doesn't happen in their country. So that's I mean, we're going to be dealing with this to some extent or another until a vaccine comes along. So through the rest of the year, at least. Uh, absolutely. And and you mentioned Italy and we've talked to uh, the Globe and Mail uh, bureau chief in Italy a couple of times and others talking about, you know, you need a waiver even to go to the grocery store to go out if you're going yeah. and you're going yeah. out. And, and again, nobody wants to see those measures taken elsewhere yeah. if we can avoid it, that from happening. Yeah, by the way, Italy extended their lockdown now, uh, I believe, into about mid to late April. Um, although I just just looking at the numbers, I've been following them rather closely, and there's some good news out of Italy. I mean, the death rate there is, is still not very good, 812 people today. But uh, as of today, they've had nine straight days of either static or declining new infections. Matter of fact, today's was 4,050 new infection cases. You'd have to go back to March 17th to see a number that low in Italy. So, um, obviously still a, just a god-awful situation there, but there is a glimmer of hope that they're on the downside of a peak. All right, so we will leave it there. Shane, thanks. Always great to chat with you. You as well. Thanks for having me on. All right, Shane Woodford, former CKNW reporter. He's a freelance journalist now living in Denmark, where those measures have now been extended until mid-April, but they are starting to see that, again, those measures are working. All right, we have the update now and some strong language from Dr. Bonnie Henry and some updates from Health Minister Adrian Dix as well. Dr. Henry saying this is the watershed week. What we do this week will determine where the numbers go and whether or not the numbers of COVID-19 cases in this province increase, or if we see that our actions, the physical distancing, those actions are actually helping to flatten the curve. Uh, We now have a total of 970 cases in this province, 106 people in hospital, 60 people currently in intensive care units. That's an increase of eight people in the ICUs. The number of increased cases, 86 new cases during the past two days. Also uh, today it was announced 
two, two new deaths, two additional deaths. That brings the total of deaths in this province to 19. We've also been seeing some amazing ways that people are helping others as many people are feeling the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Food banks getting a $3 million emergency grant so they can keep their doors open and keep helping some of the most vulnerable people in various communities. So how are they responding to the challenges associated with this pandemic. Take a listen to this report put together by CKNW contributor Claire Allen. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted every segment of society and food banks are no exception. Here in BC, food banks have had to reduce operations while at the same time responding to increased demand. Fiza Jaffer is the executive director of the Surrey Food Bank and she says the impact of COVID-19 has been huge. So we've had to change pretty much everything that we do uh, here at the food bank. We've changed the way we operate. We've changed our uh, times of operation. We've had to close down our off-site locations uh, for the safety of our clients and volunteers. So everybody comes to our main location here on City Parkway now. Um, we're being a little less stringent with our um, means test. So if people come and say, that they've been laid off or they need support, we're trying our best to accommodate that. Uh, So it's, yeah, it's changed a lot in these last two to three weeks. Jaffer says COVID-19 has also changed how their clients are able to access the Surrey Food Bank. A lot of the clients are are still coming. I mean, we're we're keeping the the physical distance guidelines of the two meters and uh, we've changed our operations so that only one uh, person is allowed in the building at a time to pick up. We've changed to uh, pre-built hampers, so nobody's touching the food, uh, nobody's touching our, our fresh produce. We do pre-built bags, but uh, a lot of our clients are actually saying, you know what, we, we're self-isolating, so can we send somebody? So we've seen a lot of that, like third-party people coming in, so like either uh, their friends or family members who are not self-isolating or not showing symptoms are coming in to pick up for them. Uh, a lot of the clients, even people who have not registered, are saying, you know, we're self-isolating, can you deliver to us? And unfortunately, we're down to skeleton crew, so we don't have that capacity. While serving their clients remains a priority, Jaffer says maintaining the health and safety of clients, volunteers, and staff at the Surrey Food Bank takes precedence. Everybody's wearing gloves, we're sanitizing everything, like every couple of hours. Uh, again, limiting the amount of people in. My staff is really has really been amazing. Uh, we've cut down the hours that we're operating, so they're out of here uh, at a, a time where they can go home and be be with their families. So those are the kinds of things that we're doing, um, and we've been adapting every day. Like this morning, we just had another staff meeting saying, how can we uh, do this and still maintain the cleanliness standards that we have too? So we're kind of shifting things around even more today and tomorrow on how to do that. On Sunday, the BC government announced food banks will receive an emergency injection of $3 million to continue feeding families in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. Jaffer says that funding is a great start to help with the demand. Now that like $3 million, is it, a, it's a, it is a lot of money uh, and it will go to the food banks directly, which is amazing, which is great. So I applaud the province for doing that. Uh, the money will go towards um, like staffing, infrastructure, buying food for the clients, making sure that we have the fresh produce and the, the dairy items and the fresh proteins that should give to the clients. Because um, like 
people in our communities have been very generous, but also we have to look at the amount of donations coming in. So some food banks uh, have seen a decline in donations, like we've seen a decline in, in food donations, uh, but monetary donations have been amazing. So there, there is that balance. Uh, working with that money will go to directly to, again, purchasing, so working with the suppliers, working with our local grocery companies and food industry to, and how we can get that food and how we can pay for that food. Because uh, the, the outset, like a lot of food banks, especially rural food banks uh, and food banks in Nigeria, food banks up north, don't necessarily have that financial capacity either. So this money will go directly to that and helping those uh, food banks that, that probably don't have that capacity. These are very hard times for everyone across the province, and Jaffer expects the need for food banks to increase. Thanks for being with us. So, well, as you've likely been hearing, restaurants are having a very tough time since they were ordered to shut all dine-in service. Takeout delivery is still an option, but really not enough to keep all of the restaurants afloat. And there have been predictions that we could see about 15% of restaurants in BC that don't recover from the economic downturn being caused by COVID-19. Well, you might have also heard about a new campaign called One Table. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Miru Dalwala, owner of Vidges, a co-owner of Vidges and uh, featured in the One Table campaign. Miru, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us today. Hey, Jill. Uh, What exactly is the One Table campaign? Well, basically, we're trying to get all of us together in one cohesive voice around the country. So we do have a platform that's stronger than any individual restaurant would be. And, you know, noticeable enough, for example, the way everybody talks about you know, the airlines need this and the banks need that, insurance companies need this. We're trying to just basically unite to give ourselves a bigger, more powerful voice. And what, how has the response been so far? I, I think it's gaining a lot of momentum as people do realize that, uh, you know, the restaurants um, as an accumulated industry – we make a huge part of the economy. We make a huge part of our culture. We make a huge part of how people enjoy themselves in the city. And so I think it is gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, how will restaurants be affected by uh, the increase in the wage subsidy with the prime minister coming out uh, and upping it from the 10% to the 75%? So for us, that was a great um, move. I mean, it was very, very helpful. I think it's going to help us um, carry on, but that's one part of the assistance that we need. So, for example, my staff that's working right now um, that we've got hours for, specifically the kitchen staff, even if we've just gone down to delivery, and by the way, at Vidges, we were a dine-in, and with just delivery takeout, our revenues have gone down 90% right now. So Hmm. for the staff that's working, that's great. But we've got hourly staff, and at 90% less business, I just, I mean, EI is still a better option, right? Right. So it's great for the employees that we are able to keep employed. That's wonderful. And there's two ways of looking at my, or our business. One is, you know, how are we going to keep afloat today, next month, and the following month? That's one way of looking at it. The other is sometimes, you know what, if we're looking at how to keep afloat today, that doesn't necessarily translate into we will be afloat a year from now. And so that's what the government also needs to focus on. So 75% wage subsidy is fantastic, but we restaurants can't reopen full-time to a new economy with more debt to repay. Even if it's at zero interest, it's nevertheless more debt to repay. Um, we don't even know if people are going to, you know, come back in the same droves as pre-COVID-19. 
Right. And and that goes to the uncertainty, which is just everywhere, especially without knowing what's going to happen in the next week, in the next month, in the next six months, even. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned, so for a restaurant like yours that was a, a dine-in restaurant, even going to a takeout model, are you able to do the physical distancing with kitchen staff? Because kitchens are generally a place where people are kind of all over each other, on top of each other. Yes, and that's what I've made a very specific point of in all of my correspondence and email and publicity. So we are maintaining that social distance between our kitchen staff. Uh, we have a bigger kitchen, and um, like I said, I've, well, I've done a special menu. I've done a, you know, it's a revamped menu of vidges. And so people are getting different dishes, but these are dishes that we are able to prepare that obviously it has to taste good. I can't lose more business during delivery time. Mm-hmm. So it's still tasting good, but we're able to prepare it at a distance. Right. And and will you be able to keep up that model then be able to keep paying enough staff and to do that for however long this continues? No, not I'm not sure. It just depends on how the business, the takeout and the delivery picks up. We're all in the same boat together. So suddenly uh, there's an abundance of restaurants now who are doing delivery and takeout. So customers have a lot to choose from. And again, it's a, it's, it's a new demand and there's a huge glut of supply. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We're all doing it. So it really depends on how well we do as restaurants. In terms of takeout and delivery to see, okay, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? And how long this drags on? And and, and any concerns when you talk about supply? Uh, you make very specific dishes. I, and you said you've changed it a little bit to make sure that it works in a delivery model. Uh, but mm-hmm. is, there, are there, is there any concern that you might not be able to get the right ingredients or that things will change yeah. there? Yes. Yeah. So, for example, you know, even our vendors have seen a huge decrease in their uh, business. So, Um, So a lot of my suppliers are saying I need to get paid today when I deliver Hmm. because we are losing a lot of money as well. And, you know, another supplier saying, wow, uh, you want us to deliver five bunches of kale Hmm. versus, you know, previously we were ordering, you know, a thousand dollars worth of food. So everybody is seeing this down the supply chain. And my job right now is just coordinating all of this as best as possible to keep it going. Right. Because I would imagine, and and not suggesting this, but in some cases, it would be easier for people just to close the doors. I think those of us who have a huge cushion um, probably are going to close the door. Maybe those of us who just don't have the staff, because again, a lot of, I mean, they're not just staff, they're human beings with elderly people at home, perhaps with family members who are immunocompromised. So I think it's a combination of how much of a cushion do you have? How much staff do you have? Is your restaurant even set up to do this kind of a, you know, takeout delivery style of a business? Is your cuisine set up for it? So I think there are a lot of different decisions that, you know, we all have had to make. Restaurants, you know, people forget it's not just about, oh, you know, it's a really busy restaurant. The restaurant can be very busy, but we pay a lot of money for renovations, design, plateware, cutlery. Um, for example, at Vidges, you know, I've had my kitchen staff for 25 years. And so my labor cost is pretty high. Uh, there, you know, everybody has mortgages on their homes, and it's it's a career. It's not just an hourly, you know, job that you can change. So, you know, we have huge labor costs. We have huge food costs. Um, you know, a boiler breaks down. Suddenly, we're responsible for that um, equipment. Um, it's a very paper thin margin for us. Absolutely. Uh, we just have about a minute left. What about your bills as well? About we've been talking a lot about rent and leases coming mm-hmm. up uh, shortly. Uh, what do you do about that? Well, we're right now just setting up and 
planning and getting through week by week. We haven't really yet spoken to our landlords or anything like that. Thankfully, no one has come knocking on our door, you know, saying, hey, it's April 1st. So, um, you know, we're pretty thankful about that one, too. I think everybody is sitting and waiting, and I would hope that we take into consideration what Trudeau said today, and we've all got to act in good faith. All right. We will leave it there, but I'm sure we will check in with you again. Miru, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. That is Miru Dalwala, co-owner of Vidges, also one of the owners featured in the One Table campaign. Restaurants doing what they can to stay afloat in these uncertain times. When we come back after a break for the news headlines to the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk to Claire Newell with Travel Best Bets. Uh, You might have heard the news up to uh, 15,000 layoffs at Air Canada. We're also going to take a look at refunds as far as people who had trips planned and are still unclear on what to do about cancellations and those new domestic rules in place now for all flights and trains within Canada, denying people boarding if you are showing any signs of COVID-19.